are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In New York City, as you heard in the headlines, some 2,000 firefighters face being put on leave without pay for not complying with vaccine mandates. Former UH football coach Rolovich is headed to court over being fired over refusing to comply with mandates at Washington State. And this morning, we just learned that Oahu Transit Services, which operates the bus, very quietly put its mandates on pause last month. Tamara Addison, Human Resources Manager, told us today that the decision was made to wait for additional guidance from the Biden administration and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. The original deadline for the bus operators was September 15th. It was then pushed off to October 1st if the union was able to get 90% of its members to respond to a vaccine survey. Here is Addison's explanation for the latest pause. Yeah, they were put on pause and yeah, basically waiting until we get the final decision. Um, in the meantime, it was going to allow us time to review all of the exemption requests. So we had over 170 and about 100 12 or so have already been approved, approved, and we need about um, 50 more that need documentation. And which ones are we talking about, religious exemptions or medical exemptions? Majority are religious, but we did receive about almost 40 uh, medical. Are any of them problematic? I don't think they're problematic, no. It's just that sometimes it takes an um, effort to get documentation from the physician. And so what is the status of these drivers then? Everyone is working since we put a pause on the effective date. Are they being tested? Not at this time, no. So they just, what, are continuing the mask wearing? Correct. Mask wearing, social distancing, or physical distancing, and staying home when sick, getting tested if they have symptoms. Have any of our routes been affected at all by this? No. And then when did you make the decision to put the pause on the program? Probably early October. So well, what's the indication from the Biden administration? When do you hope to hear back? We're hoping this week. It was supposed to have been early October, and then it just kept getting pushed back. What can you share with us as far as the opposition from the unions? Uh, the union has been very cooperative. We don't see any opposition at this time. And we're just working on the logistics. One thing that they really want is to have on-site testing, um, but as we discussed on our last call or meeting, it was uh, cost was a factor. Um, and since then, we've also gotten approval from the city to use their other testing sites. I believe they have about six in total. So it'll make it a little more convenient for our employees. Of the applications for exemptions that you've received, are any from a particular area, particular zip code? Not that I'm aware of, or we haven't sorted it by that. Um, we had about a, a little over 170. 134 were for religious, 18 medical, and then 20 apply for both religious and medical. One or the other. Interesting. Yeah. If they don't get approved by medical, then they'll have a religious reason. <laughs> okay. And of the ones that you have approved, are the majority of those religious? Yes. If you're not doing testing, then, uh, gosh, then it's just if anyone feels sick and, and then they do get tested and that's that's how we're catching any COVID cases. I don't know, have we had any positive cases this month? We had six so far in October. So our case count has gone way down. Like, um, we've had 38 in August when the Delta variant was high and then um, only 15 in September and down to six in October. 
Okay, so it's a manageable level. Yes. What about the uh, bus ridership? Any concerns that the drivers have expressed? Uh, you know, are, are people pretty much into the routine of wearing masks when they get on the bus? Yes, for the most part. Um, there have been isolated incidents of some conflict when, when the drivers need to remind them to pull their mask up, to, you know, wear it properly, put it over their nose and mouth. But for the most part, um, employee, um, riders are cooperative. Okay, so no real issues there. Yeah. And then what about our vacancy rate? How are we doing? For bus operators, we're continuously hiring. We have process scheduled for uh, 2022. Um, we're looking at um, increasing our numbers because of the upcoming rail integration. Do you normally add any routes during the holidays or... You know, is there a, a push just to uh, get new people into the program? So our routes are done on a quarterly basis. We have these sign-up periods. So um, the most routes that would probably be added or adjusted would be during the time of the rail integration. So that's our focus on ramping up our hiring. Um, so we have a class that's starting um, this month, and, and then every three months we'll have another class starting. And how does that work? Because we keep getting the start date of the rail project pushed off. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so regardless of when the rail starts, we still need drivers um, to continue offering the, the right size service to our um, patrons. So we're just going to keep pushing forward on that. And these drivers, are they then, uh, what, getting hands-on at the rail facility? No, so they're... They're not going to be using the rail or driving or operating the rail. They are going to be bus operators. So, you know, the, the bus routes will be, like, feeding in to the, the rail system, taking people to the rail stops and then from the rail stations to their destinations. I see. So just modification uh, yes. to the routes. Right, and the routes and schedules to make it a little more convenient for rail users. And as far as the operators of the train... Who will hire those employees, then? Will it, will it be HART or DTS? Either Hitachi or DTS. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I, I, I can't respond for them. Oh, okay. But it's not OTS. We're not part of the rail. Okay. Um, gosh, I don't know. A- anything else that you're looking at as we uh, kind of get into this new phase of the pandemic? I think this is something that we just need to learn to live with and continue our safety protocol. It's nice that things are a little, um, you know, are getting better and opening up. Hopefully there's another, there isn't another variant that moves us back, but um, regardless, we have to just continue and uh, to adjust. And, you know, we're all waiting for the approvals, the federal approvals on uh, the vaccines for the younger children, but I'm sure they're bus riders too. And so I imagine that that'll just kind of boost the comfort level for everybody. Yes. I think our employees mostly have families, and so they want their families to be safe as well. As far as uh, this announcement that we're waiting from the Biden administration, you know, is OTS the only one that's put a pause on this, or have the other city employees done it as well, other departments? Um, I'm I'm not aware of what the city is doing. I think they're still moving forward. Um, So since we're a private contractor, that was our choice to to put that pause. And we are continuing to work with the union 
as well. Okay. And then how much were you uh, spending, again, on the testing? It was like thousands a week, right? Um, yeah. So our policy was that if we were going to pay them two hours per two hours per test to take the test, then that would have been quite a bit if they make about $30 an hour. Mm-hmm. I think it was going to be about 10000 a week or so. That was Tamara Addison of The Bus talking about the snapshot with bus operators and the vaccine and testing mandates. OTS says of the uh, about 1,000 uh, drivers that it has, close to 88% are vaccinated. The city says it's continuing to process the applications for exemptions to its vaccine and testing requirements for other city employees. A lawsuit filed by a group of first responders was dismissed last month. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Dental Service with guidelines for a healthy smile, including brushing twice a day, flossing daily, and seeing a dentist twice a year, helping people live well and smile more. HDS. Last year, when the U.S. economy shut down, why did the stock market soar? Because the Fed in March of 2020 threw trillions into the markets, thinking that that was the way to prevent catastrophe. And the markets, of course, took the money and ran. That's what they do. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We'll look at why the Federal Reserve is an engine of American inequality. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. You are listening to The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, a page from the radio history books. The first message sent using wireless technology came in the form of a phone message sent in Morse code that linked Iolani Palace with the Kaimuki Relay Station. The day was June 16, 1900, and the message was, Hello, is anybody out there? Radio telegraphy took hold quickly with messages sent inter-island only a few months later. Commercial service to the U.S. continent began 12 years later. The broadcasting of music and speech came in October 1920 when M.A. Mulroney and T.C. Hall transmitted nearly an hour of talk and recording from the electric shop in downtown Honolulu to the Pacific Heights home of their only known listeners, Tong Fong and his family. Commercial radio launched two years later when two stations competed to be the first on the air. They began broadcasting within minutes of each other. And for today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of either one of these broadcast outlets. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. 
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Today marks the first day that leisure inner island and trans-Pacific travel is officially welcome again. Governor David Ige uh, made the announcement two weeks ago at the Kona International Airport that the state is open again now that our COVID cases are down. Uh, today, uh, HPR's uh, Casey Harlow joins us to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, uh, so today marks the first day that non-leisure or leisure travel is welcome back in the state again. And uh, a lot of economists and tourism officials are excited about the upcoming winter season, holiday travel season. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know in my family, <laughs> they've already booked their trips for uh, for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, definitely, yes. And, you know, this is, there's a lot of optimism that, you know, this will be a good time for tourism. A lot of visitors will come, especially uh, a lot better than the last two months, where we saw in September, you know, about 505,000 people arrived to the state, spending a little bit more than a billion dollars in uh, that is a decline of 31 and 15 percent, respectively, compared to like September 2019. And you have to uh, also take into consideration that with uh, business not coming in and visitors not not as many visitors coming uh, during those last two months, hotels had to reduce worker hours. As I have reported earlier, about a month ago, that you know Local Five is seeing that. Workers were uh, not getting as many hours or being furloughed again, and hotels were uh, cutting departments still. And that was made worse with, you know, federal uh, emergency pandemic relief not there anymore. So kind of put people in an awkward position. And But again, a lot of optimism going forward and businesses uh, possibly going to be recuperating some of those losses in the last two months, maybe uh, later this year or early next year. Also talked to uh, John DeFries, who's the president and CEO of uh, the Hawaii Tourism Authority, and this is what he said about the upcoming months. Historically, the holiday season would signal an early start to the first quarter of 2022, and the first quarter annually achieves the highest levels of visitor arrivals per month, per week, as well as occupancies. So... I do believe that there remains a pent-up demand in the United States, which will be our primary source market. But Canada, beginning mid-November, also becomes a significant market that moves us well into the first quarter as well. Now, by comparison, I do think it will be as strong as it was during the summer. However, I expect our businesses to be better prepared. And so he mentioned Canada there, and uh, there's a lot of anticipation that the White House and possibly Governor Ige will make an announcement regarding international travel once again. And uh, DeFries says that Canada by itself overall isn't really that big of a market. There's still a lot of travelers that come uh, through, come from Canada. But uh, when that's grouped with other markets, say like Japan and South Korea and Australia and all the other markets uh, that a lot of visitors come through, it makes up quite a bit of a, a 
visitors, 15, 20%. And that a lot of people are uh, anticipating that that will offset some of the losses from domestic travel uh, because uh, we saw a huge boom during the summer. Uh, and he said, DeFries said that he expects that our businesses are, are better prepared. And by that, he meant that, you know, businesses are already kind of used to a lot of visitors like pre near pre-pandemic levels. And so when there isn't that many uh, people coming through, possibly because of domestic travel from the summer, uh, Canada, Japan may offset those and even spend more dollars. Uh, he's also hopeful that, you know, by January, restrictions will be loosened, uh, continuing uh, with the county and also with the state, but also for Japan, which is a big market. And this is uh, what he had to say. We are hoping that in the month of January, we'll begin to see visitors returning from Japan. And all indications are that there is a pent up demand in Japan as well. Yeah, I know they're also talking about, uh, uh, you know, looking at Golden Week, you know, in the spring. So very optimistic that things will loosen up. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also to take into account is that when international travel opens up again, uh, we may lose some visitors. We may not see as many as the summer, uh, mainly because uh, people may have already come here and are looking at other destinations or there's other destinations. And just DeFries says that, you know, just like in previous years before the pandemic, Hawaii will have to reset its brand and get its brand out there and uh, face the competition in uh, like, say, uh, Mexico or Thailand or other uh, beach and sand destinations that Hawaii competes with. Yeah, and I think key, though, is keeping our COVID cases down because yes. if we can promote ourselves as being a safe destination, then, then that'll help. Yes, definitely. And all of this is dependent on the COVID cases remaining low. Otherwise, we may see a rollback of restrictions and things like that, and who knows what will happen. But yes, very much dependent on COVID cases being down. Okay, keeping our fingers crossed and everybody does their part. All Thanks right. so much, Casey. Thanks. That was HPR's Casey Harlow talking to us about increasing optimism in the vacation industry as leisure travelers are welcome back. You can read his stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reality Check Today features a bright spot on the public school landscape. Honolulu Civil Beats education reporter Suvon Lee joins us. Good morning, Suvon. Good morning, Catherine. So I understand you're out visiting schools. What did you find? Uh-huh. Yeah, I visited one school, Pa'oa Elementary, last week in um, the Pa'oa Valley in Honolulu. And um, I decided to visit the school, and the principal was very gracious to have me on because the um, school had been seeing increased um, assessment scores over the past few years, pandemic aside, but previous to that, which was um, a little bit um, different from the statewide trend of the Smarter Balance assessment scores kind of remaining flat. So 
Pa'o Elementary is a Title I school, meaning that、uh, many of its、um, students are low income and qualify for free lunch.、Um, yet they were able to really turn around their scores right around 2016. So I was intrigued by that and、um, had the principal sort of explain why and、um, tell me some, some of his strategies. Well, you know, it's interesting because. You know, you often hear of families、uh, filing for exemptions to, to go、uh, attend a school outside of their district.、Um, but it sounds like Poe was doing something right. Right, right, right.、Um, yes, Dale Arakaki. Dale Arakaki, rather, is the principal, and he was saying that a lot of families were requesting geographic exemptions when he first joined about eight years ago.、Um, but interestingly, they were requesting exemptions outside the school but within the same Honolulu district. So they were、um, wanting to go to different schools, but he managed to sort of reverse that trend. So there are more families actually coming in through GEs than are leaving. Through GEs out. Well, that's great. So, so what is key to their success? Well, one,、um, one thing that he said that the school does is develop action plans, something called an action plan for each student. So basically, they're assessed at the beginning of the year through the universal screeners, and their strengths and the weaknesses are identified per student, and just goals are set out for the whole year that teachers want students to achieve. So it's a, just a really intentional plan for each student. He also mentioned small group instruction and、um, also just time for teachers to plan. So it sounds like just kind of all of those things working in concert really did make a dent over the past few years. And so is he uh, uh, sharing that <laughs> with, with other schools? I mean, gosh,、uh, you know, that, that's pretty amazing what they've done、uh, raising the you know, math and language scores. Well, it's interesting because when the Smarter Balance Assessment scores from spring came out last week,、um, a lot of education advocates were sort of questioning why some of these bright spot schools weren't more,、um, I guess, recognized by the DOE or their practices kind of more widely practiced in, throughout the system. And so it's,、um, it's, it's not clear whether these kinds of strategies are being kind of universalized across the board, but I think that、um, it would be a benefit to have. To have the DOE sort of look at these and see if more schools could, could benefit from it. Yeah, because they're, they're not the only、uh, school that has the challenges of you know, uh, families uh, coming from families、uh, on the、uh, lower、uh, economic scale, you know, and you've got multiple、uh, nationalities you know, within the community. Right. It is a very diverse school, Pa'o Elementary. It's、um, one third Native Hawaiian, and there are、um, a lot of English language learners coming from different ethnicities. And the one, one thing the school emphasizes is, is really sort of、um, embracing an inclusive culture. And so I think fostering that positive school climate seems to have also really accelerated student learning because if The kids want to be there and they're engaged with the material and they feel like they're being, list, they're being heard or just being incorporated into the day to day environment. They're going to they're gonna be more、um, engaged with the subject matter. So, really, it is an example of just one of these schools that kind of did、um, boost its scores and,、um, and it, it, it does sort of、um, 
it's interesting because because of what we saw last week with with the SBA results and how schools even before the pandemic really weren't performing that well with the core subjects like math, language arts, and science. Yeah, and there was a lot of hand wringing, you know, uh, because educators felt that the, a lot of the the learning was stymied, you know, with the uh, uh, remote learning with with the wireless. Right. Yeah, there was about, I guess, 80, 80% of students were still doing distance learning as of last spring, uh, is what the superintendent had said. And um, he really did, during the last Board of Education meeting, emphasize how that lack of in-person instruction um, impacted student scores on these tests, which, by the way, had a lower participation rate than an average year. But this is, um, you know, this is a disrupted school year, but now we're kind of back to normal. Yeah, well, kudos for Paola Elementary uh, and their staff for getting those uh, student scores up. But thanks so much, Subhan. Sure, thank you. That was reporter Subhan Lee with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls, committed to raising women of purpose on purpose, announcing a virtual open house this Saturday. Registration at lapietra.edu slash admissions. Almost a thousand people in Hawaii have lost their lives from COVID in the past year and a half. Many may be still struggling with grief missing their loved ones. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to a bereavement expert about the best way to live with loss. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from First Hawaiian Bank's Digital Mortgage, offering home buyers an online home mortgage platform featuring a calculator that estimates closing costs. More at fhb.com slash digital home equal housing lender. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Monday Stargazer. HPR's Dave Lawrence sits down with astronomer Christopher Phillips to talk about alien hunters and a mysterious radio signal. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we're so fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal and on the line with us right now, too. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. For this week, stargazers Jupiter and Saturn can be visible in the south and eastern skies, and they will set around midnight. The moon this week is passing through its new moon phase, and so sky brightness will be perfect for stargazing. And it is the day after Halloween, so Chris has one of our favorite spooky stories, that mysterious signal from Proxima Centauri is back in the news, huh? 
<laughs> Indeed. Back in 2019, it was reported that astronomers using the Parkes radio telescope in Australia had detected a radio signal from our nearest neighbour, Proxima Centauri, which is in the Alpha Centauri system. They were understandably excited, as many budding alien hunters around the world were also. Since then, they have been hard at work processing this data to probe its origins. And unfortunately, it turns out not to be aliens, but rather a radio source a little closer to home. What a shock. It's not aliens, huh? <laughs> right. Uh, and this is the second time, huh, this thing has turned out to have uh, bogus radio signals or something like that, yeah? Yeah, as it turns out, the Parkes radio telescope detected another signal back in the early 2000s, which turned out to be a signal from the microwave in the observatory <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> Whenever someone would heat up their food, the signal would be picked up by the telescope. Rather unfortunate indeed. Spooky aliens out there. But in all sincerity, that place is still high on the list for alien hunters, right, Proxima Centauri? It is. Astrobiologists love this star for several reasons. First of all, it's close at a distance of 4.2 light years, which is practically next door in astronomical terms. Secondly, Proxima Centauri is known to have at least two planets in orbit. And lastly, it is the proposed target of an interstellar probe mission that is currently on the drawing board. All we have to do is come up with a vehicle that can go the speed of light, and it'll just take four years, and we'll be there. Huh? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's going to take a little bit longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's Christopher Phillips, another fun report here. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can catch Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we thought about the impact that radio had on the islands in the early 20th century. That was when the advent of wireless technology gave us a whole new way of communicating inter-island and later far beyond. Wireless telegraphy began in 1900, and by 1912, commercial service had begun to the mainland. But broadcasting of speech and music didn't come until October of 1920. Commercial radio arrived two years later, and on May 11, 1922, two Honolulu stations raced to be first on air. The first sounds, a few hellos spoken into the microphone, were heard on radio station KGU at 10.57 that morning. Fifteen minutes later, radio station KDYX kicked off its programming with a greeting spoken by Territorial Governor Wallace Ryder Farrington. And the winner of our quiz is Ralph Toyama from Mo'ili Ili. We had lots of calls, including a former colleague, Kyoki Kerr, who tells us that he worked at KGU in high school. Love that radio history. If you have uh, an idea for us that you would like to share on our backyard, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we cover a lot of different topics and issues here on The Conversation, and sometimes our interviews strike a chord with our listeners. Uh, one listener wrote in after we talked with Dr. Errol Buentoyen about the special monoclonal antibody clinic set up by Kaiser. She wrote, I, I heard Catherine Cruz's uh, interview about the new monoclonal antibody treatment center on Maui. A week later, I called my best friend for talk story 
Uh, she is one who has been afraid to get vaccinated, has been very careful, always wears her mask and self-isolates, etc. She answered the phone coughing. I asked about it, and she said that she and her husband, both in their 70s, had been very sick for five days with a really bad cold and could hardly walk to the kitchen and were sleeping all the time. I questioned her carefully and made a list of other symptoms, start date, etc., and said, you both need to get tested for COVID right away. She said, why would I want to do that? I explained what I learned from the conversation. We called an expert. They were tested and treated the next morning, just in time for the early intervention treatment to work. And now it's been a week, and they are recovering very well. Mahalo to HPR for saving lives on, Maho- on Maui, and Maho- mahalo to Kaiser as well. And a couple of listeners had something to add to our series, talking about the future of aquaculture in Hawaii. Hi, this is Laura. I'm calling from South Kona on the Big Island. I would just hope that any project would move forward with an incredible overabundance of caution. I'm not sure if we're talking about genetically engineered fish, but even if not, remember there have been accidents. In 2017, there was a huge release of Atlantic salmon into Pacific salmon territory in the Salmon Islands, and... This was very unfortunate. We don't even know what the implications are of that yet. And so it's not a question of if, but when an accident will happen. Yeah, it's a very delicate thing, and I just hope that everybody moves forward very carefully. And so, yeah, thank you. Bye. This is Corey Harden from Hilo. Instead of open ocean fish farms, we need to do Hawaiian fish ponds where people work in concert with nature and do fish tanks on land where the waste is collected for fertilizer. Open ocean fish farms are confined animal feeding operations. Disease can spread and infect wild fish, and fish can escape and weaken the genetics of wild fish. Mahalo. And as for our check-in with Maui restaurateur Aaron Plakarakis, well, it really hit a bright spot for Sarah on the Big Island. Aloha. I was listening to the conversation today, and you had Aaron from Maui on. He talked about his struggles over this last year due to COVID and how he chose to learn and grow from this experience and how to make things better. I have been in a dark space for a while, and listening to this program flipped my switch. I literally stopped and started a mantra of saying, how can I grow, learn, and make things better from all of this? I would like to thank him for lifting me out of a scary, dark place. Mahalo. I love HPR and NPR. Sarah. Thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Halloween 2021 is behind us, but the scares continue at Kumukahua Theater. Its current production, The Kasha of Kaimuki, is based on the legend of the infamous and terrifying haunted house in East Honolulu. It was written by Wailuan native Hannah E.E. Epstein, best known for plays Not One Batu and Pakalolo Suite. 
The story focuses on three women who move into the home only to encounter unexplained activities that at first confound and then terrify them. With the help of their friend, they find the ghost from Japanese folklore who has an insatiable hunger for blood and corpses. Will the four friends survive or will they die like the others? The Conversations Russell Subiano talk with E.E. Epstein about writing the play and whether she believes the legend is real. Do you believe in ghosts? I do. I absolutely believe in ghosts and like majority of supernatural things. Oh, okay. Interesting. Have, Have you ever had an experience with a ghost? Have you ever seen one? You know, I've personally never seen one that I can recall, but I've definitely felt energy that is different, heavier, I guess. Okay. Okay. I don't remember how I heard about the haunted house in Kaimuki, but I've read some of the clippings from the newspaper and I've heard enough people talk about it. So I at least believe that it's a legit legend, whether the accounts are true or a different story. What fascinated you about this story that you decided to write a play about it? I think it's the growing up in this world where we have heard all of those things. Like I, like you don't recall, like the first time I fully heard about the Kasha of Kaimuki or that specific haunted house, but it has been legend throughout Hawaii and Oahu specifically. So I think I just gravitated toward that. In the nineties, Glenn Grant gave a speech to a bunch of kids with like a little slideshow thing about a lot of his ghost stories from Chicken Skin and Obake. And I specifically remember him telling the story of the Kasha and how much Chicken Skin it gave me. Like it was that and the Night Marchers that really like hit me hard. So I think that kind of just stuck with me through my life. Have you been to the area? I, I used to live in Waikai and there were times when I would take some back roads home because of traffic or something and I'd always look out for it I'd, I'd be driving through that that back neighborhood on Harding and I'd be looking around and be like is that the haunted house is that one have you seen it or, or been in the in the area yeah the last time I was out um out there January of last year I believe it was either 2020 or 2021 but my dad my mom, my wife and I were in a car and my dad was driving us to a restaurant and all of a sudden we're in a neighborhood and my wife got chicken skin and she's like, where are we? And my dad's like, I'm driving us by the house right now. And he pointed it out. At least like he pointed out what we assume is the actual house, right? What kind of research did you do to write your play? Did you read a lot of accounts? I don't know if there's any books or or any anthologies that included, but what kind of research did you do to write the play? Well, I definitely started with Obake Files and reread that short story that Glenn Grant wrote. And then it was a lot of just Google research and a lot of people's blogs posting their accounts on it, finding the old newspaper articles. Yeah, the internet is full of so much that it's difficult to decipher like what's real and what's not. And I feel like that is a lot of legend, like the idea of the reader or the person in taking the information deciding like this is a true thing or not. I've read that the ghost that haunts the house or that haunted the house was Akasha only in two places. 
one of which was the title of the play. And then I think the other was a, like a social media posting. Those were really the two times I've ever heard that. Can you tell our audience what Akasha is? Akasha is a demon from Japanese folklore, specifically. It's usually portrayed as a cat humanoid that takes people's soul who is sinful in life before they're buried. What do you think it is about the Akasha or maybe ghosts in general that scare us or, or they always seem very angry about something and they always seem like they're trying to scare us or bother us or they want something from us? You know, I'm not sure. I know that fear is a thing that we always want to feel in some way or another, because what it does to our body, like get it's our heart racing, our blood moving, our brain kind of thinking in a different way. So I think that's why people gravitate toward the spooky sometimes is just to like feel something different for a moment. In regards to negative energy ghosts, I believe that People tend to feel that a little more than the positive energy ghosts. As a Kanaka, I feel like my ancestors are always with me. And there are moments where I feel like they're pushing me forward to be better. And with negative energy ghosts, you feel the exact opposite of that. One of the random stories I ran into in my research was a Japanese couple and the woman It was the first night they lived in the house and the woman woke up to something on the foot of her bed that just freaked her out. So she woke up her husband. The next day they got a kahu, uh, like any type of um, priest or anyone to bless the house. And they had like three or four different religions kind of come through. And the kahu had told her to leave out food every night. And so she started leaving out dinner for the Kasha and the Kasha never showed itself again to this woman or this man. And they lived there for a few years without any bother. So I think when it comes to negative energy ghosts, there is a respect that people can have to show them like we are not here to to mess with your jive, like please don't mess with our jive kind of thing. I think that's a good way to respect the energy around us as people. The two accounts of the haunting that made it into the newspaper, at least the ones that I've read, one where a mother and her children were trying to ward off the spirit, and another where three girls who were renting the house were fighting off someone who could not be seen. If it makes it into the newspaper, seems like there has to be some validity to the occurrences. What do you believe happened? I mean, I feel like it had to have been real if that many people actually felt the physical force of it, because it wasn't just the folks that lived in the house. It was also the police that came to the house to help them. So I, I feel like that makes it a little more real in a way, because it's a ma- more of a mass amount of people as opposed to like just one person being like, I saw a thing or I felt a thing. And that there were witnesses seeing like the girl being choked, who was a college student, and the cops witnessing the children being pushed onto the couch. You know what I'm kind of curious about is, I know they demolished the house in 2016, and they built up, I think, like two homes on the property. And I just wonder if the demolition of the house like cleared the land or, or cleared the, the residents of the spirit. 
I'd be curious to talk to the people that live there now, or even like the construction company that demolished the house and built it back up. I wonder if they ran into anything. Did you, did any of your research lead you to what happened after the demolition? I feel like the demolishing of the house and the rebuilding didn't necessarily take it away as much as lessened its force. So instead of like being able to physically choke a, a college student girl, they kind of like are more quiet in how they're affecting people that live in that house. Kind of shifting gears a little bit, several of your plays have been produced at Kubukahua Theater, but this one seems to be a little bit of a departure from the topics that you've covered in the past, at least on the surface. How different would you say this story is from things you've written in the past, like Not One Batu or Pakalolo Suite? I guess I would say it's definitely less dramatic because it's a completely different genre. And so all of my plays are very character forward. So it's about learning about the characters, their situations, and how they handle the things that are thrown at them. So that's the same in all of my plays. But because this one's genre specific, I did want to play around with the idea of what a ghost or what the supernatural can make someone do as opposed to meth or pakololo or like hallucinogens right so it's like things being thrown at characters and how do they handle that thank you so much for your time hannah i enjoyed talking story with you excellent thank you so much that was local playwright hannah ee epstein talking with hpr's russell sobiono the Kasha of Kaimuki runs until November 14th at Kumukahua Theater. Check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. out of time. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Kathleen Ho, the state's new uh, Deputy Environmental Health Director. We're going to talk about the flurry of developments with the military's Red Hill underground tank farm. What do you think about what should be done over there at Red Hill? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 